0: Title of my message this morning is The Great Reveal. You know, I, I can't remember the TV programs, but you know, sometimes there's this, all this hints and clues and all this almost subterfuge going on, and then there's this great reveal to what it is. And, and today we're going to look at Christ in a great reveal. It's called by most people. Most of your Bibles will have as a heading over this section of Scripture the triumphal entry or something like that. As I've been reading and studying and looking at it again and going over it and over it, I'm still trying to figure out what was was triumphant about this other than the people got excited for a little while. And it's almost sad in a sense instead of triumphant because they got excited because they were totally misinterpreting what was taking place. And as I looked at it, and I'm going to try to give a little background today, you know, sometimes I, I look at things and I wonder, why today, Jesus? Jesus had been to Jerusalem before. He'd been there teaching before. He'd came and gone before. Now, a lot's changed. They hate him even more than ever, the religious people. Uh, it's kind of, we could say it in this kind of language, is pretty much a warrant out for his arrest is basically where, where it's at. And... This event takes place a week before the resurrection. And it's interesting because in that week between the event that takes place, we call the triumphal entry, and his resurrection, Jesus comes and goes into Jerusalem more than once. And it's like, what was the big deal about this particular day? What was the purpose of this particular entry into the city? I mean, by now, I hope we all understand, Jesus doesn't do anything just for fun. Everything has a purpose. As he said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. So when Jesus does something or says something, there's a purpose and a reason. And oftentimes, I think when we just do a cursory reading of something, we don't even think about that. We just take it totally at face value and wonder. And we read the story, and it's kind of a great story. Wouldn't be in all four Gospels if it wasn't. But what, what's the purpose? Why today, Lord? Why this way, Lord? Um, As I said, it's a week before the resurrection. It's just a few days before the crucifixion. Um, Jesus and his disciples had basically probably been on at least a two-week journey or more coming back from um, the area of Galilee. Put up the first map, would you please? I I like pictures. It helps me to see. If If you look at the map, You start with the Dead Sea at the bottom, and if you go straight up north, eventually, the picture's not big enough, but I wanted to be able to see the cities, you would continue on up, and you'd come right to the Sea of Galilee. And an awful lot of Jesus' last ministry was around the Sea of Galilee, in the Galilean area, the Galilean territory, doing all kinds of amazing things. And then they worked their way down, and he came over, and he kind of came down the, the Jordan River towards the Dead Sea, and you see where Jericho is. Now there's a Bethany over here to my right, your right, that's not the one the story's talking about. If you see, if you go from Jericho, that dotted line takes you up to Bethany, and then into Jerusalem. And they've finished up, they've been on this journey, and last week we talked a little bit about at Bethany. It's like they've they've got there, it's a week before the resurrection. So there's a lot of stuff going to happen. And it's like they got there, they, they, they performed, Jesus performed those amazing miracles in Jericho, gave sight to the blind, got that little guy named Zacchaeus saved, and he's arrived at Bethany. And at Bethany is where some of his really good friends live, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that's where he had performed that amazing miracle of calling Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead. Which, of course, as close as you can see on that map, it is to Jerusalem. It's, it's probably not even two miles. It's very close. So you raise a guy from the dead two miles from the religious epicenter of the Jewish people. Word got around. And not just into Jerusalem. It got around all over the place that he raised this guy who had been dead four days. His friend, Lazarus. And the people are talking all over the land, about this guy named Jesus. This Galilean, this prophet, this teacher. He's been walking around ministering, doing things that they have never seen before and teaching in a way and authority that they had never heard before. He's feeding the multitudes. He's healing the sick. He's curing lepers of leprosy. He's raised the dead. He's fed the thousands for a few fish and loaves of bread. He's, he, it's been astounding. And you can imagine, this, this little country of Israel is not very big. You know, from the Dead Sea across to the to Mediterranean Sea is like 70 miles or something like that. It's just not very big. And you can imagine, if somebody was doing these kinds of things within 70 miles of, of Balaton, we'd probably hear. And that's what was going on at this time. And Jesus is now about ready to enter Jerusalem. And like I said, he's he's been there before. He's came and gone. But something's different this time. Something's really different. First of all, everything that I just told you about his ministry has occurred in the last months in a dramatic way. And the religious people have been sending religious people out to these different places where Jesus is causing all this trouble. We call it miracles and healing. They called it trouble. Trouble. And they know what's going on. And they feel threatened by this guy, Jesus. So much so that they've, they've been planning, how are we going to get rid of this guy? And you read the different Gospels, you see, not only are they, they thinking, we've got to get rid of him, uh, while we're at it, let's kill Lazarus too. This, that, 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 he just can't stay alive. It's, it's not good for the religious leaders that he's, be, he's alive. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 19. I'm going to just go ahead and read these scriptures. And to get the full picture, you really need to read all the Gospels because each one's add a little bit and it's a little different. But I'm going to start in verse 28. Jesus had been speaking and then it says, And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. So he's at Bethany and he's, he's, before you get to Jerusalem, you've got to go up a hill again. And then you're going to come to a, 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 a crescent and you're going to start the descent down into the Kidron Valley and then back up into the city of Jerusalem. And it says, He started the ascent and it came about when He approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of His disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you in which as you enter you will see and find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. He's making preparations for what he's about to do. Jesus is actually organizing his entry into Jerusalem. Hadn't done that before. At least not that we know. And he says, And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And then they threw their garments on the colt and then they put Jesus on the colt. And as He was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as He was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Notice what they're praising Him for. They're not praising Him for who He is. They're praising Him for all the miracles they've seen. And they start praising Him and saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other Gospels, you'll see him declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna. And and they're just going nuts. And some of the Pharisees and the multitudes said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Be quiet. Why? Because you're going to cause trouble. The Romans are going to think there's something amiss here. And we don't want trouble with the Romans. And they didn't want trouble with the Jews. And he answered and said, "I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out." And when he approached and saw the city, he he goes down the he goes up the ascent, and he's ready. And now, all of a sudden, there it is before below him. He sees the city of Jerusalem, and it says he wept over it. And he said, "If you had known in the day, even you." Jesus is speaking to the city to the nation. And he says, If you'd know known, even the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a a, blank, a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Some context: Passover week is beginning. Now, Passover was one of three religious holidays, and believe it or not, they weren't Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday or Easter. None of those things existed yet. Passover was the first of the three, and when, of these three, they had to, the Jews were supposed to all come to Jerusalem. So what's taking place, you've got to understand, there, there's this migration, there's this movement of Jewish people from every direction all coming down these roads, through these mountain paths, we call them roads, these mountain paths basically. And they're coming thousands and thousands and thousands. Depending on the historian you believe, uh, some of them say the city swelled to 2 and 3 million, some say it swelled to hundred thousand, from about 40,000. Whatever the case, it was a lot of people. The roads would be packed. And many of them would come a week early because of the purification ceremonies that they would have to go through. So Jesus is there. It's a week early. And these celebrations, keep in mind, they would be walking, they'd be coming on donkeys or camel, whatever they could travel with. There would be people coming. Go ahead and put a map up there again. They would be coming from the Mediterranean Sea by boat. See up there towards the top left, Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea was a a big port city. And it'll come into play in, in just a moment. But people would be coming from every direction. And one of the things, when they'd all come together, guess what one of the things they'd be talking about? Do you think this guy named Jesus is going to come? Will he be there? We've all heard it's, it's, it's traveled through the world, so to speak, and they've heard of Jesus. Do you think he's coming? I hope he comes. hope we get to see him. Maybe he'll do a miracle for all of us. We want to see what's going on. And the Caesarea. Now, most of us are familiar with the Easter story, and when I say the name Pontius Pilate, you know who we're talking about, right? Well, the Romans, Pontius Pilate was the governor basically, of this area. He was the Roman representative. Now, this wasn't the plum job in the government of Rome. He didn't want to be stuck in Jerusalem in the middle of this God-forsaken place. It was not a plum job. So he didn't stay there much. As a matter of fact, he stayed there as little as possible. History tells us where he would stay would be up at Caesarea. By the sea, it was much nicer, much more comfortable, much cooler. It was a much better place to be. But at least three times a year, he'd come to Jerusalem. Why? Because the crowds would be so large. And he wouldn't just come. There was a garrison. Go to the next map. Notice up here where it says at the top, Fortress of Antonia. And notice its location, right near the temple. This is where the Roman garrison that was there permanently would stay. That was really the worst job because you had to stay, and they didn't like being there, which probably helps explain how much they hated the people and how vicious and violent they were. And the Romans had an interesting way of taking care of the lands that they were conquering and then controlling. They would come in, take control, with force, whatever's necessary. And then they would establish some local rule. And then they would tax the people like crazy for Rome to get their money. But they would connect most often with a religious group that they would put in charge of helping collect the taxes. And the religious group could keep whatever they collected over what Rome told them to collect. And that would be how they would control the people through the religion and the religious leaders. And the Pharisees and the aristocrats fell right into that trap. So they didn't want their world shaken either. They didn't want to fall out of favor with Rome. They didn't want to lose their power, their prestige, their wealth. All of those things would be threatened by a messiah. So Pontius Pilate would come, and you can leave this one up there, from the west, and he would lead this procession of military soldiers. He'd bring some cavalry riding their horses decked out with all of their Roman uh, uh, armor. The soldiers would be in their armor. The foot soldiers would be coming in all their armor and all of their, 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 their Roman attire going to war as if they were going to war. Marching these same roads from the north and the northwest. The same roads that the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims would be walking on. This show of power. Carrying their banners carrying golden eagles representing Rome. It would be quite a production. The sun shining off of those golden eagles. And Pontius Pilate, the governor, would be leading the parade. A show of imperial power. And not only imperial power, also it it was a show of the imperial religion. At this time in history, Caesar was a god and worshipped as a god. And he's coming from the west to Jerusalem. And in the meantime, there's this other procession taking place. Now, historians, some historians will tell you that at the exact time Pontius Pilate was coming from Caesarea with the military parade, that is the time that Jesus came from the east with his parade. No way of knowing that for sure. But we do know that that parade came from the West every time there was a major holiday to make sure they kept those Jewish people in order. You can imagine a city of 30,000, 40,000 going to 300,000 or 400,000 or on up depending on your historians. They had to keep them under control. So this parade comes from the West. And this is the environment, this is the situation when Jesus is getting prepared to come walking in to Jerusalem. Only this time he's not going to walk. This time he's going to come walking, riding in on the back of a, a colt of a donkey, a colt that has never been ridden before. And he's going to make this entrance like no other entrance he's ever made. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew in a few days he was going to be crucified. He knew that he was going in amongst a group of people that didn't understand, most of them didn't understand what he was doing. And he knew that a lot of them didn't believe in him anyway, at all. But he knew. And when you look at what he did in this entry, he is revealing clearly that they should have understood exactly what was happening. Jesus comes from the east. He comes from Bethany. You see on the right side to Bethany. And to get to Bethany, and when you're coming into Jerusalem, you come and you come down the Mount of Olives. The rabbinical traditions say that the Messiah is going to come from the Mount of Olives. The Messiah is going to come from the east. The Messiah is going to come. And He's doing this in the face of the temple, and the Roman garrison at the fortress of Antonia. They'd have been able to see this whole thing coming down the mountainside. I mean, talk about a giant billboard. Jesus is revealing who he is. But the Romans, for sure, would have looked... And in their mind, they could easily see Pontius Pilate coming with the cavalry behind him on his mighty war horse and all their weaponry and all of the glit, gold and the silver and all of these things. And here they see this guy coming down riding on the colt of a donkey. People might have been excited, but they wouldn't have been all that impressed. The religious people It tells us in the story that people were coming out of Bethany. They were wondering and talking, is he going to show up? Is he going to show up? And now the word comes, he's coming. So they're excited. People are going out to meet him. And they want to go out and see Lazarus too, for that matter. So this crowd is coming. Now in our mind, we might think of it as 50,000, 20,000, 100. You can't get that many people on these narrow roads. And when he gets into the city, the streets are very narrow. Which helps me, helps me answer the question, how could they turn from shouting Hosanna, Hosanna one day and a week, less than a week later they're hollering crucify Him, crucify Him. Probably wasn't even the same people. The people that were coming from all these other parts where Jesus had been performing the miracles thought of Him one way and those that were in, in, in Jerusalem under the influence of the religious leaders thought of Him another way. You can imagine the conflict and the positions of the different people. He comes and enters the city. And in in verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Remember, the people have been waiting for over 600 years for the Messiah to come. And there's been other people come claiming to be the Messiah, but they really weren't. And that's one of the reasons the Romans sent all these soldiers because there had been some uprisings before because of these false messiahs but now jesus is coming and in in zechariah 9 9 it says rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey that picture does not fit the picture of a conquering king A conquering king would have come on that mighty war horse. And Jesus comes riding on the foal of a donkey. The crowds, the religious leaders, as well as Jesus, knew what the scripture said. These religious people knew. The Jews knew what Zechariah 9.9 said. They knew that this is how the Messiah was supposed to come. Then he had said he allows his disciples to put their cloaks on the donkey kind of making a, a, a saddle out of his, their cloaks. This was also something that a king would have had his servants do on an occasion that was this special. And then he slowly rides this donkey down the Mount of Olives where all the rabbis would have been teaching the Messiah is going to come from. And he's riding on this donkey a symbol of peace. When a king would come in peace, he would ride this donkey. When he would come in war, he would be on his war horse. Jesus is just declaring with this amazing video, I am the Messiah. The Jewish religious leaders couldn't have, shouldn't have missed it. The Jewish people shouldn't have missed it. And even the Romans with the garrison right there facing the Mount of Olives, right next to the temple, knew something was going on. Or easily should have. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and he was sending a message. He was doing exactly what the Jewish people would have expected their Messiah to do. And the people went nuts. They were, they were celebrating We read through the different Gospels, you see that they start throwing their garments on the little path, the dirt path, so that the donkey and Jesus can walk on the the garments. This is a picture of the homage and submission to the king, honoring the king. Something that the the imagery would have been recognized by everyone. This is what's taking place. The palm branches, we hear all about the palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday in in church. They call it Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Well, those palm branches had a significant symbolic meaning. And it went back to the Maccabeans when, when the Jewish nation was under unbelievable rule and persecution by the Syrians. This group of Jews, the Maccabeans, rose up in a revolt. And they, when they won, they, they drove the Syrians out and they, they established Jewish self-rule. It was an unbelievable victory setting up a political kingdom, the Jews, and the waving of the branches. The palm branches were a symbol of that political victory. And the people are waving the branches as they're throwing their cloaks on the ground. For the person that would have understood that, it would almost appear as a symbol representing it's time for a civil war. The Maccabeans drove out the Syrians. We can drive out the Romans. And this is all being played out because Jesus intentionally chose to enter the city on this particular day and in this particular way. And the people, one of the things they're shouting are is Hosanna, Hosanna, which interpreted simply means save us. Save us. The irony of the real meaning and His real purpose. He was the Messiah and He did come to save us. But they're all missing and misunderstanding and misinterpreting all the events of the day. They're thinking a political leader. They're thinking a political salvation. This is the guy. This must be the guy. He's coming as the Messiah. He's fulfilling these prophecies. They're throwing their coats on the ground, submitting and paying homage to the king. They're hollering from Psalms 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And just even that alone would have resonated because Psalms 118 was part of a group of hymns that they sang regularly as they ascended to Jerusalem. They would sing and chant that. And, and, they, and they're singing this and chanting this as Jesus is coming. 600 years they'd been waiting. I mean, just think if there would be a really special event going to be in South. something as special as maybe the newsboys are coming to town. Man, we'd put up posters and signs and buy our tickets in advance. We'd be talking about this event. We'd be making preparations. We'd be lining up babysitters. We'd be getting ready because it's a big deal for some of us. And here's 600 years they've been waiting for this day. And all the signs are there. And they're thinking, we are standing here and we are seeing history being played out before our very eyes. Man, am I glad I came to Jerusalem this year. Am I glad I didn't miss this Passover. This is going to be amazing. They expected Jesus to come and be the political leader who was going to drive the Romans out, establish a Jewish state, and he was going to be the conquering general. It was obvious, but they were misinterpreting Everything. And as I said, all of this was taking place right in front of all the Jewish leaders and the Roman garrison on the east side of the city. Now I don't want to make, to make a deal out of these two different processions because we can't know for sure that they took place at the same time. But we do know they both occurred. But it's such a contrast of the world power Their empirical power, their authority. Their power coming in flesh and weapons. Being led by a governor who represented a god called Caesar. Their protection. And then we have this humble man riding on a donkey coming into town. When you look at those two processions in the contrast... It's almost a picture of Jesus knowing as he knew there's a choice to be made because there's a verse in here that just doesn't fit in the whole story. Isn't there? Jesus wept. What is that doing in this amazing triumphal entry? It doesn't seem to make sense. When you look at the scripture in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, it simply says, when we approach Jerusalem, He's he's riding the donkey. The people are going crazy. He's went down the descent a little bit, and he's going over the last knoll till they come all the way down the Mount of Olives. And, And when you get there, there lays this gorgeous city, the beautiful temple. And Jesus sees it all, and it says he wept. And if you do a word study on that word, you'll see that he didn't do one of those little tear running down the cheek kind of things. It's a sobbing. We would look at somebody who's sobbing and their shoulders are shaking and bouncing as they're weeping. This is that word. That's the strength of that word. Jesus wept in the midst of what was taking place. And it says, He says, He then speaks and He says, If you'd have known this day, even you, Jerusalem, Jewish nation, if you'd have known this things which make for peace, I'm coming on the donkey, I am the king who is going to bring peace, everlasting peace. But now... It's been hidden from your eyes. It's been hidden from their eyes because they've rejected him. They've chosen the world over his kingdom. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He's weeping because the Jewish people had missed the point of it all. Yes, there were believers. Yes, there were some that got it, but the great majority missed it completely. The religious leaders missed it, rejected it, made a conscious decision to kill him. The point of Jesus coming to earth had been missed. The point of all of his miracles, the point of his teachings, the point of his healing the sick, the point of his casting out all the demons, the point of feeding all the hungry, the the point of forgiving people of their sins. The news had spread everywhere throughout the land and they completely missed the point. For three years approximately, Jesus has been teaching about a spiritual kingdom. He'd been speaking about a kingdom where God's rule would be established in the hearts of people who believed His message. They wanted political deliverance. He wanted to deliver them from the power of sin. Spiritual deliverance. They wanted someone who would come and conquer Caesar and He came to conquer Satan. Satan and the power of Satan. Look at the choices they had to make. He came to save them from their sin and give them eternal peace with God. He came to deal with the guilt and the forgiveness, the issues that were really, really important. But they weren't interested in those things. Really, what they wanted was somebody to come and deal with the superficial stuff. Now, superficial stuff can be important, And it can cause suffering. But it's also temporal. They were more concerned. You know, they followed him and were cheering. Why? Because of the miracles that he had done. He'd fed fed their bellies. And they wanted more of that. They wanted someone to set them free of the, the, the rule and authority of Rome. The superficial issues. They did not accept Jesus on his terms. And that's the problem even yet today. Lots of people want a Jesus, a Savior, a King, who will come and deal with all the superficial, the temporal things in our lives. That's what they want. And they'll even make a confession, and sometimes a public confession of that being Jesus. Because they so want that guilt to be gone, that shame to be gone, that pain to be gone. They so want the situation to be changed, the circumstances they're living in. And they want all that, but just like the Jewish people, they don't embrace the terms that Jesus laid out clearly. What were his terms? They're the same terms today as they were then. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Die to self every day. Count the cost before you make a decision. These were his terms. For the Jewish people, if you were a Jew of that day and you lived in Jerusalem and you decided to become a Christian, you were in big trouble with the Jewish people. Talk about being an outcast and persecuted for what you believed. Same thing's happening today. Today amongst the Jewish people, but amongst the people of many, many nations. Look what happens in the Islamic nations if your family member decides to accept Christ and agrees to the terms that Jesus sent out. They're they're not looking for anything superficial because they know the moment they make that choice, they have counted the cost. Their families may disown them at best, stone them, burn them, torture them, Kill them because they agreed to the terms that Jesus laid out. They understood the big picture, that there is a peace that passes all natural understanding, that Jesus came to establish peace in the hearts of man. You know what? We can have peace no matter what circumstance we're living in. I, I was sitting with Glenn and Karen yesterday in the hospital and the doctor came to visit while we were sitting there. And she walks up to us and she looks at me and, and Josh, their son, and Karen, and, and, and Glenn. And she says, which one of you am I supposed to be talking to? She says, God, you look good. Any questions or concerns? No, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. God, that's amazing. That is not natural. That is not normal. That is not earthly. That's the peace in a circumstance that we can all have. But it comes with a cost comes with a cost. We have to pick up our cross daily. We can misinterpret all the signs. We can can take what we hear, even in a church. You might sit in a church and you might hear somebody preach or Bob teach for for months or, or years. But unless you understand the terms and you're looking for the superficial, we can make a profession that's not even real. It's an emotional thing. God, you're a Christian and you seem to have your act together better than me. I want that. Can I become a Christian? Sure. Say this prayer. That's not good enough. It changes who you are. We become a new creature in Christ. Our attitudes about life change. I don't like circumstances that are unappealing to me. I don't like the circumstances Glenn is finding himself in. But I know there is something beyond. There's a peace That passes all understanding. We have the promises of God. Do we stand on them if we've counted the cost? There's nothing else to stand on. And this is where we can be like the small group of people who believed or we can be be like the masses who rejected Christ as the Messiah. And that's what Jesus wept about. He knew what was going to happen. He saw 70 years into the future or whatever it was, 50 years into the future. He saw when there was going to be siege around Jerusalem. He saw when they were all going to be starving and killed. Some estimates historians say over a million Jews were probably killed. And it leveled the city. It destroyed the temple. He knew this was coming. And why did it come? Because they did not understand the time of his visitation. And they paid a horrible consequence. And the reality is, for every one of us, there is that moment, that time of His visitation in our lives. When we have an opportunity to make a decision, where it's time to count the cost, where it's time to decide, is He really, Jesus, the sacrifice for sin, that died on my behalf, that I might have life, He died, that He was raised from the dead, and that resurrection power now lives in me in the form of the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that? Or do we just say, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. I think I'll be a Christian and I'll pray that prayer and hope my circumstances get better. We face the same choice. Every single person faces that choice. And really, we talked about this in the last few weeks. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Destruction. The consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ at the time of his visitation in your life, leads to consequences. Eternal separation from God. Hell. But if we accept Jesus Christ, we accept who he really is, as we, as we see the truths of his word and embrace those truths, as we, as we count the cost, as we were singing, you know, the king, the king of kings, Is He the King? Is He the Lord? They sang the words, but they didn't want a Lord. They wanted somebody to set them free of oppression. They didn't understand. The King of Kings, the Lord of our life as a Christian, is one who governs out of love. Out of love. Everything He does is because He loves us. We don't always understand it. Sometimes it's pretty serious spanking. But it's because He loves us and wants us back in that place of intimacy with Him. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you've never made that conscious decision, you need to do that. You need to do that. The time of His visitation for you could be right this moment. The Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart and you... You've got this thing going on and you're like butterflies in your stomach. That's probably the Holy Spirit inviting you to make a, to- make a choice. He'll never force you, but the invitation is there. The time of his visitation. So I'm going to close in prayer and I'm just going to give you an opportunity. If you are one of those people today, you don't know for sure You don't know for absolute sure that you have accepted the gift of Christ as the Messiah, as your Lord, the King of Kings. If you don't know for sure, as I pray, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray from here. I'm not going to call you forward. There's no magic in that. But there is something to making that confession, acknowledging. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much that there is a time of your visitation for each one of us when your Holy Spirit has prepared our hearts. You're drawing us and you're wooing us to that place of decision. That place where we have the opportunity to choose between eternal separation and eternal love, peace in your presence in heaven. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you are moving in the hearts of each one of us, drawing us, wooing us. Lord if there be anybody here who's never made that decision, Lord, I pray right now, your holy Spirit would just prompt them in their spirit, saying, "Today's the day. If that's you, I want you, everybody just keep praying in an attitude of prayer. If that's you, just raise your hand. I'm the only one looking around. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you that for each one of us, there are new mercies every day. God, that there's an abundance of grace available to all who come. Lord, I pray that as we head into this Easter week, you would be leading, guiding each one of us and to take hold of every opportunity to share what Easter's really about that we might be your hands and feet, that we might be able to speak your words, that you might be able to allow us to be a part of leading someone else to Jesus Christ and the salvation made possible through him. Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways today, you would go with us Go before us. Watch over us. May we be ever alert for your still voice as you speak to us and respond quickly in obedience that you'd receive all the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.